Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Jay Roach's new drama, Bombshell. Based on the real-life scandal, the film follows the group of women at Fox News who exposed the toxic atmosphere of harassment at the network and took down CEO Roger Ailes. In addition to Bombshell, Mr. Roach's credits include the feature films Trumbo, Dinner for Schmucks, Meet the Parents, Mystery Alaska, and three Austin Powers films. The pilot for the television series The Brink, the DGA Award-nominated movie for television All the Way, and the DGA Award-winning movies for television Game Change and Recount. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Roach spoke with director Leslie Headland about filming Bombshell. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. That was pretty good, right? <laughs> right? I loved it. I loved it. Let's, yes, yes! Thank yes. you. Thank you very much. Get it. Yes, 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 yes. Um, no, congratulations. Just such a great, incredibly affecting, funny at times, entertaining weirdly. Um, also, a lot of PTSD came up for me watching the film, having worked for a man uh, almost exactly like uh, Ailes in, in many, many ways. Um, but my name is Leslie Hebland. I'm a writer and director. I made two movies, Bachelorette. Sleeping with other people. I'm also the co-creator of Russian Doll uh, on Netflix, and I used to work for Harvey Weinstein, which is kind of my claim to fame, uh, honestly, at this point. Um, and so, yeah, I could really like well, what I love about the film, and I'd love you to talk about it a little bit in terms of the pre-production, the prep. How did you create that toxic atmosphere? Because it really, the movie really drops you into it and doesn't help you into it, which is something that I think really. Um, uh, is so, so affecting and right on. Like, like that type of work environment with that, it all trickles down from that sociopath at the top. It's, that was my pitch. Literally, <laughs> what, what, I, what I went into Annapurna at the time, and actually when Charlize sent me the script, um, uh, just as a friend, to give her notes, we'd worked on uh, a TV thing or something, and we were, so I just wrote, and, but the whole pitch to her and to Annapurna was, I see this as, as Roger Ailes's weird culty playhouse, like he's a cult, it's a totally, cult. and that he was sort of projecting onto. And it was it was good marketing from his point of view. He saw it as a way to sell news, as we describe. But it became much more as he got addicted to the power of it and the um, the ability to both cast people who fit into the cult, but then if even if they deviated slightly to um, kind of force them into the mold, you know, and, and have them reflect back to him what he thought of as what a loyal soldier. That's why that song at the end is called One Little Soldiers. He looked at it as his loyal soldiers who owed him a debt because he was helping them, which he really did help them. A lot of women talked about how much, even Megan Kelly, who, you know, worked for him for 10 years after he harassed her and he kept promoting her, you know, and so it was a very complicated situation. But it was, that's the whole point of it to me was what it might be like trying to figure out how to fit into this guy's playhouse, you know, and how he would not only make you conform to it, but then also pit you against 
every other person in the in the scheme of it all, and that that would be both toxic from a standpoint of you know just bullying and everything else, but it was also you know just women were put in these situations where they they uh, were pressed for his loyal his loyalty, and you would show loyalty to him. It meant sexual favors. Yeah, there's something that really rang so true about the commodification of the female body in order to sell your product and how um, women, I think, in any, you know, any occupation at some point kind of run into why are you wearing your hair that way, you know, so on and so forth. This is just to the nth degree of we can't do our job if you don't show your legs, you know, like, which I thought you know, call me an idiot, but it just had not occurred to me. Like you put, you put it in a frame where I, I finally understood because, you know, I, there's always the joke about it's just a bunch of, you know, blonde women on, on Fox and so on and so forth. You know, like I kind of thought, well, it's probably, you know, it's run by a bunch of like, you know, misogynist assholes. Um, but actually it is very smart. It's actually very smart. If you want to have news on 24 hours a day, what's going to, what's, What's the thing that's going to get you? And the idea that you are serving a purpose and that you start to desensitize yourself as an employee for a person like that, that you do start kind of thinking from the neck up and you just don't kind of live in your body. You know, and of course, that's so much of what PTSD, when I was watching the film, felt so much PTSD of just like, you know, it's being stored in certain places that when you went through it, you just kind of went, you know, I'm a soldier. I mean, it, it, it's very, very similar, that idea that um, when I see my friends now from Miramax, you know, it, it is like seeing somebody from Vietnam. Like, you know, you're just like, are you, oh, how are you doing? You know, like, you okay? Um, wow. That being said, I was interested. We should just talk about that. For this uh, yeah, thing, sorry. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, but that being said to... about Fox being assholes, I was so interested in how much of the, how much of Fox you were using, like the licensing and the logos and all these kinds of things, exposing the way, the inner workings of how, um, just, not just, uh, you know, the way that women were being exploited, but exploited, but the way that power was being consolidated. Like, how were you able to do that and not get in trouble? You said, you know, I want to get into that before, but I wanted to say that off of the whole thing of how how you use, you know, how, how men are used to using women to sell things. I'm quite aware that I'm part of a business that does a lot of that too. Oh, same, so, same, know, so yeah. <laughs> we're, uh, it's not like, and it's not also not like it's not part of a lot of other news and weather ladies and all, you know, it's, but there was something unique to the way Roger Ailes uh, marshaled it all in a very organized way and a very um, a savvy way, frankly, like you said, he, he, but, but it did have this, these, this collateral damage and a lot of women suffered in ter in terms of um how we um you know how we how we figured out how to use all the real fox world and make it seem authentic we just uh were determined to to get it right we did a ton of research we had my production designer had a had an actual mole inside of fox who had been there a long time we sent us a lot slipped us a lot of oh, wow. photos and things but one of the things as you know that that's interesting for me was interesting and I've developed this over time making recount and game change and then and even on even in Trumbo and uh, all the way the LBJ thing where we blend in a lot of archival footage in game change we actually intercut Julianne Moore playing Sarah Palin with Katie Couric you know and That's actually right. use real Katie Couric and uh, in a lot of cases you can't get permission to do that but there is the fair use um, kind of clause uh, of intellectual property that allows you to, for if it's if it's for a film that has a public benefit, a social benefit, 
you're allowed to use small amounts of, of footage without permission, uh, and it's you just you just claim fair use, and you can you can do it. And you, it, but there, 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 there's one important catch to it is that you have to try to be as authentic as you possibly can be to um, not change the meaning of how it was used originally. Right. So me, so for us, it always means match everything. Use all the the actual logos, all the like in in all the cases where we put both uh, make, uh, Charlize Theron as Megyn Kelly confronting Donald Trump, for example, in the primary oh, debate yeah. when she says, these are all the horrible things you said about women. We're intercutting her with Donald Trump, but she's wearing the, the same outfits. She's in, I matched the shots. And same thing with Julianne Moore. I put her, you know, Julianne was, both of them actually, Julianne and, and uh, Charlize were so into matching, even body language. And so if you can show that you're trying desperately to be authentic, you're, t you're telling an expressive uh, story. You're not, as we say, we're not, it's a, it's a painting, not a photograph. As, but it is, you do try to be authentic. You can't be accurate because you can never squeeze an, a year-long story, which is what ours was, into two hours and not, and not deviate and take license and have composite characters. But you can try to be just as deeply authentic as you can through research, through, we interviewed a ton of the actual women who worked there at the time, who'd been through things like this. And we had every single prop person, uh, production designer, wardrobe people. Um, we had you know, Colleen Atwood, the amazing oh, uh, yeah. Academy yeah. Award winning um, uh, costume designer uh, who did our, all our, and we had Kazuhiro who did all the prosthetics, this incredible prosthetic work. Uh, so there's a there's an interesting balance between interpreting and ex expressing and authenticity that enabled us to actually get um, to to get as close as we could to some sense of being there. I think you use it so slyly, like it's it's really really well done, and it, it it's you know obviously something we've seen before um, in kind of I would just say like a flashier way, meaning uh, you know uh, Oliver Stone with JFK and uh, you know. Um, uh, you know, Robert Zemeckis Michael with Forrest Mann Gump, to, yeah, with you know, the like Ali, Michael, all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like it's it's a technique that's used, but in a weird way, it kind of becomes the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's like when Men when Megyn Kelly in the in the in your film says like, "Am I the story?" You know, like it's like I, what I loved about how it was utilized here was she looked so much like Megyn Kelly. I mean, I I was just like, I mean, tell me the first time you saw her come out, where did you just like pass away and come back to life? Like it was what? it really was shocking. Where even when we did the makeup tests when she first walked out, everyone and what's what's you know we're we're sort of ready for it. The audiences that we screen a lot, you know, in post, yeah. I, I guess because I come out of comedy, I really like screening it over and over and all through post-production. We screened it almost every week for at least 50, 100 people, you know, sometimes for previews, it's 500 people. And we're doing it to just see what's, what's clicking and what, what, where, do you, where might I be losing the audience? Where am I, and I don't, we're never slavish to it, but we always just pay attention to it. And it's mostly our way to restructure and try, and try a new way in. And we, did, we needed that in this one because it, it didn't used to start as well as it does now or end quite as well and over the course of screenings. But one of the things we noticed was that at the beginning of the movie, people thought that was real Megan, that we were starting with archival footage and they didn't, it t takes them a while. I see all you nodding your heads. Oh because, man, because it, was it takes wild. a while and you actually hear the audience start to go, oh my God, is that Charlize Theron? Like it seems so, it, it's almost like there's a, in, in, what do they call it, cognitive, cognitive dissonance where oh, yes, your perception yes. is not matching what you th were told was going on. And that, I think the audience, like you said, I think there is another, that is, that becomes the story because 
when you come to see a movie that's based on derived from real life things, that's part of the deal is the high wire act of are they going to be able to sustain, you know, keep my willing suspension of disbelief. Which I think you did going. beautifully. Like I think the film, I, I think it walks that Thanks. wire so beautifully. And I think part of the thing that helps that is the Margot character who feels a little bit more like a composite, a little less of a, you know, oh, oh, I see, you know, that that's Gretchen Carlson, that's Megyn Kelly, you know, like there's something about Margot's performance and the way, can you talk a little bit about how you and Charles developed that character? Because I believe, is she, is she a real person? She, or? She's a fictitious character yes. that is derived from a number of stories we heard, you know, and um, some of, actually even some of her background, her, her evangelical upbringing is a little bit from Charles's own life. He and I both were actually raised Same. in a, I know I read that about you. You Whoa. were raised in a Christian. Wow. I was raised Here in a are. pretty strong Christian background, um, Southern Baptist, you know, so was Charles. Very conservative families. Uh, my family are still quite uh, devoted Fox News followers, you know. God, and same. So I watch Fox same. all the time with them and try to fig figure it out because <laughs> I, when I was a teenager, I started to deviate uh, away from my dad's perception of the world a little bit and uh, have found an interesting tension. But, I, but I'm also, it's been good for me because especially in these films, I'm not trying to make a partisan statement. I'm actually a very often trying to make these films for my family who I want to, I don't know, just connect with them a little bit on some Man. level. Man, I mean, <laughs> no mom, pun intended. But, my yeah. mom, <laughs> well, and, I, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. It's just an interesting tension and it's an identity crisis all the time too and and uh my mom especially but a lot of the women in my family who are conservative um my mom was such an amazing person and and taught me to read when i was four she was like by the time she was 25 she had four kids she didn't get to go to college she was brilliant in high school you know and just was one of those women uh who just i don't know was maybe just wasn't going to get to realize what she might have become. I don't know, but she, but what she was for me was my hero. You know, my mom was my hero, and she was uh, such a huge influence on me. So I'm always, I'm kind of, I thank her in the end of the credits because she inspires me all the time. And I wanted to make a movie that might make, that might inspire women who maybe don't identify with the feminists, like Megan Kelly says she doesn't see herself as a feminist, but might want to watch the film because there are women she recognizes. She watched Megan Kelly. She watched Gretchen Carlson going through something that is not a partisan thing at all. It's something all women have to put up with. And maybe somehow we could cross over and just talk about it as a nonpartisan thing, even though there's obviously a partisan. There's Donald Trump is in this movie, you know, like there's a lot of that, too. But I, that's, that's what, I'm just getting at this in a very uh, all over the place thing. But that's. That's what I. That's what I. That's really what it was all about. For I, me. I, that's why I love that she was bisexual. Like oh, I love. Sorry, sorry, you know sorry, what I mean? Like that she thing. kept. Yeah. So she. She's literally doing this. So she, <laughs> no, like she literally has to. And we talk. I talked a lot about. Sorry, I got off track. But that. No, 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 no That no. was. Um, that's part of what went on in talking to Margot. Uh, she's so, just tapped into storytelling. She totally got the character, and she had a lot of questions. And she also had been raised in a Christian family, Margot, and she. I, she understood the idea of compartmentalizing different categories of her, different aspects of her life to somehow cope with them. She had, she, you know, Charles and I both think if she was in a different world, she probably would just be fine being gay and she yeah. didn't, but she, but in here it's like, I'm not gay. I'm just 
you know, this is just a thing. We're just having a thing. Like, and quick so, anecdote, <laughs> very similar to my own experience. <laughs> I remember, like, I was like, my sister was like, "Are you gay?" And I was like, "No, I just sleep with women." And she was like, "That's pretty gay," you know, like, <laughs> just like a pretty gay thing yeah. to do. And I, that's Please continue. I love that yeah. she says that. Yeah, no, so that's that's you understand you understand where she's coming from, and that's uh, I I like that part about her character. But she also there were young women even late in Roger's career who were being put through these horrible situations. And the other women, Megan and Gretchen, had some amount of power. Gretchen you know, gave up all her power and, and took a huge risk. Megan had great lawyers. They both had great lawyers. Margot is not going to have support in this. And she represents much more, the much more common story of women who are just trying to get, you know, just trying to get some, some slight you know, move up and end up being manipulated that way and then have to face that they don't necessarily have those kinds of means to cope with it. And and watching, I think her character becomes the more relatable sort of, you know, soul at stake, if you will, as the story goes on. And Margot's performance, I mean, that scene in the, when she's being harassed uh, with Roger, the scene where she confesses to Kate McKinnon, and on all the lighter scenes too with Kate. I, we, we've often said we should do a spinoff of Margot oh, yes. and Jess because yeah. they have such a great relationship. Yeah, I want to pitch you a movie. For <laughs> yeah. the, you know, I was like, I was like, how good of a, a, a broadcast news, you know, remake with with Margot as as William Hurt <laughs> and Kate McKinnon as Holly Hunter. Awesome. I'm in. I'm in. Let's start. Um, I'm just gonna pitch. I'm, you guys get that for free. Um, uh, but I do want to talk about that scene, actually, really quickly. I thought I just wanted to commend you because, you know, as a female filmmaker, when you are approaching a sex scene or you're approaching um, especially a scene of sexual harassment or sexual assault, for me, in the back of my head is always this idea that, like, I might be creating something that could be sexualized later. And so I want to remind myself of that, even though um, that's not my intention. You know, of course, my intention is to tell the story. Um, I just wanted to commend you. I thought that scene was shot so um, respectfully and so well. Um, I think there is something about um, the camera very intentionally dehumanizing her and not making this about his uh, arousal by her, but much more about um, almost casting her the way that she is for him. Because yes, he, f he feels that arousal, but you don't objectify that with the camera. You're so far away. It's so awkward, almost in a way. Do you want to talk at all about We talked a lot about that. that um, even in post-production, you know, it was... It's definitely, it's so fascinating. You, you, you are a director and you clearly are thinking, as I thought, every second of that because I didn't know how exact. And, and listen, it's tough. This whole film was tough as a man to figure this out. Um, I was working with so many great women and uh, you know, not the least of which is our whole cast, but I had really great women producers. The, all our studio execs were super helpful in this. And, and, but that, the, the tone, my... my um, my my advisors, if you will, in a in a figurative sense of in that scene where all the women I had spoken to or or spoken to about other women who'd gone through this, that the it was definitely not about sex. It was much more about power, oh, about yeah. Um, yeah. taking her power away and putting. You know, uh, he was so addicted to power that he he craved that obeisance. Is that how you pronounce that? Uh, obeisance, or whatever. Like obeisance, I think it's like the people who who pay tribute to him and give him loyalty. He craved that affirmation 
Um, and the way to get it is to strip it away from something. It's literally yeah. an, an evil choice, you know, yeah, to, to strip evil. away. It actually is evil, to yeah. To actually take something from someone, a little piece of her soul, a little piece of her confidence, a little piece, and humiliate her to some extent. He would never describe it that way, and she might not even have described it that way, but that's what was going on. And so it was very tough to to figure out, to, to, to have the audience be in on that and not feel like we were enjoying looking at her, that he was, but that it was not about, it is, a, he's getting aroused and I even, you know, there was even how loud should his breathing be? Like yes, how yeah. creepy should that be? Yeah. And I just did, I wanted it to be creepy. Like it's painful, like it's excruciating creepy, but she's stuck there. She can't, we want to run yeah. with her, you know, we want to take off, but she can't. So it was just, it was a, it was actually just, it's just uh, so smart. Tough. And I, you know, I, I don't ever operate the camera. Usually I, I have such great photographers. I, I came up through camera work as a, out of film school, but I love working with DPs and operators that I don't have to talk too much. I just, they know what they see. The, they see the, the scene. They know what I'm going for. Barry Ackroyd, our DP shoots in a way that, that I, chose him because he shoots this way, but then I, we, we, we pushed it together even further, which is that he always shoots in oppositional angles, right? There's, yes, no, there's rarely shooting the same side and then turn around. Yeah. So no one is ever off camera. This yeah. is what I like about it. The actors, there's never a thing where the actors are just kind of holding some back because they're off camera. And then when they get on camera, they finally deliver because then the other actors never get that up to speed rhythm yeah. from the other person. You know, some, some give it off camera, but... And it's it's uh, like watching a play, and they're sustaining yes. a live performance. They can't; they just don't get to ever slow down. But I knew I didn't want to put her through that for a lot of takes. So I said, "Let's do three cameras. We usually do two. Let's do three. I'll operate the third camera." And I was shooting that wide shot that was I thought was important to show the the weird change in distance between the two Absolutely. of them in the composition. Yeah, and. Um, I was in the room and I'm usually right next to the, you know, one of the cameras, but I was, I felt more in the room and it was so disturbing. I was worried I would blow the shot because I did have to reframe once in a while. I didn't have to do much, but, and it was the, one of the most, uh, I don't know, it was just a devastating experience for all of us in the room because John Lithgow is one of the nicest human beings. I was going to say, I was going <laughs> to say, he's either, he must people. either be the nicest person oh. or like a secret bummer. No, you he's, know, like, uh, <laughs> like he, who knew he was a diva? He's generous. Uh, he, before the film, he, he said, I need all the contact for all the actors and the, all the actresses in the film because I need to call them and say, listen, I'm going to do some really <laughs> horrible stuff in this what movie. And I love, I love all of you. And I'm, I just know it's coming from, wanting to get the character right, but I'm going to come, I'm going to come at you in this yeah. really dark way. And that's how generous he was. So all of us were, he got to that place where he was so convincing, even in the room that it was, uh, it was just, it was almost unbearable. Um, but it, again, it was just, I heard those stories from those women in my mind. They talked about the spin. People would warn each other about beware of the spin, which is Roger asking you to stand up and turn around, yeah. which would sometimes be professional a certain way to see, are you camera ready? And other times it would be this little one of the steps till you went past, till you went over your own personal line where you would never cross. And as soon as you just went a little past it, like lift your skirt up just a little higher, then he knew he had you because then he could get you a little further the next time. And now you were in this, this, this you had a secret that he could use against you. Yeah. 
and that's how so that's how we got to I that. just I mean I really have to commend you guys there's I, I want one last thing about that thank scene you, that I thought was you. so brilliant was that you know his coverage is all kind of his eye level you know like yeah. it's all like right with him so that we kind of get this sense of what he is looking at but I loved that she was at this kind of almost like omniscient angle like our angle basically like there isn't anybody in that room except for us and I actually felt a little bit of that complicity there and I think that one of the things that the film does so well is that everything is so messy but you know obviously intentionally but it feels so like all the handheld all this stuff that when Kate kind of says you know um I can't talk to you about you know she yeah, she tries yeah, to confide yeah. in her and she says, don't tell me. I don't want to know. You know, like this. I think you captured something in those environments that is very cult like, which is, uh, you know, we aren't going to talk to each other and we aren't going to support each other because um, I don't want him coming at me. So if he comes at me for this person, I absolutely will be like. I'm glad that that's not happening to me, you know, like, and you start kind of like trying to avoid essentially either the gaze or the anger or the destruction. Um, did that inform, anyway, point being, how, how with, with your, D, what's your DP's name again? Barry Ackroyd. How did you, what did you guys discuss ahead of time in pre-production? Like, did you feel like coming from that comedy perspective of like, We've got two cameras. We're just going to capture it. We want everything live all the time, which is so um, gets you those kind of veep kind of funniness and and even the succession kind of funniness, you know, um, or or did you guys kind of find it organically as you were moving through the shoot? Well, a little of uh, not, not so much the comedy thing, because we we knew some aspects of it would be um it's Charles's script had a, a, a dark irony, a dark, the sense of absurdity things we hoped people would be okay with, even though it's a very sensitive subject, a serious subject, because people do, their life is weird, you know, and we thought you could get, you know, Kate McKinnon could talk about how to do a Fox story, and she could talk about in bed with her, you know, I've been trying to get a job, but I could only get a job at Fox, and then once I got a job at Fox, I couldn't get a job anywhere else because I work (laughs) at Fox. Those things, those those ironies, but it wasn't, you know, we, we thought there might be tonally, um, we, we could get away with some comedy, but the, the way we shot it, we, Barry and I talked a lot about it, was not so much to um, go for comedy, although, the, 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 you know, you can improvise a little easier when you're doing oppositional shooting, but we only, actually, I think most of the scenes, of all the scenes we did, it was probably only Kate and Kate McKinnon and Margot Robbie scenes that were improvised at all. Oh, interesting. They, they, because because Kate is such a brilliant improviser, Margot's really good at it too. I didn't, you know, you never know. I like working in drama with comedy capable people because you yeah. get that sense of irony sometimes. I do too, yeah. But um, I didn't know if Margot would just go with it, and she was fantastic at it. So th- in her scenes, their scenes, we did. But most of the time, it was very, I, I usually shot list, you know, intensively, storyboard. I have shot list for plan A, and then I have shot list for plan B, C, D, and E, which are the ones that are what happens when something goes wrong or you run out of time, you have to speed it up. And in Barry's case, he was like, I don't really want to know what your shot list is, I, and I won't have marks on the floor. <laughs> He's a documentarian, and so he, would, he watched, we rehearsed a couple times, and, and uh, a lot of times we would shoot the rehearsals, but he would find it. And like that scene in the elevator that was the teaser trailer, 
there's some amazing camera operating when when we're shooting over Margot to to um, Charlize and just the way she, she you know we're on her you don't know what's going on then she glances the focus pulls she pan, he, all that discovery is Barry hoping he doesn't know about it in advance but getting there just as a documentarian would and having you feel like you're more even more voyeuristic you're more that kind of not quite mind's eye view but that documentarian's uh, just being able just finding the the, the the camera position that you weren't quite wasn't quite pre-staged but was when you when he got it it was like oh thank god the camera got there right at the right time and that's all just Barry's incredible camera operator he's you know he shot uh, Ken Loach movies he shot um, Paul Greengrass movies he shot um, he shot The Big Short he shot um, he shot Captain Phillips you know he's an amazing uh, DP and he'd worked with Charlize on a couple things and so we were lucky lucky to get him through um, through her great producing she's a really fantastic producer too but that's how that happened that's how that I mean that together. makes so much sense too because those types of environments like toxic environments environments that revolve around predators like so much of it is energy which I don't think people understand like when people first started approaching me to talk about my experience it was always like you know like how do you feel about the way that he treats women how do you feel about the sexual stuff and it was like um, I just have I have a problem with the way he treats everyone you know what I mean like I have a problem with the, the energy of this person in the world who is basically, you know, like, and so to have a cameraman and for, or a DP rather, but to, to start your process from an energetic kind of perspective, I think is why it captures that so beautifully. I, the last question I had for you, um, and then do we have time for, hello? Time for more stuff? No one's cutting me off, so I'm gonna keep going. Um, in that scene in the elevator, I really noticed the score of the film, and I noticed that the score utilized female vocals a lot, which I thought was really interesting. It's something that female vocals, at least for me, usually denote a certain amount of like grace, you know, like or lightness. And the fact that you were using it so ominously, I thought was so interesting. Do you want to talk about yeah, how that, that came about? Yeah, that's a really. That was an interesting thing that developed with my composer, uh, Teddy Shapiro, Theodore Shapiro, who I've worked with in a bunch of films. But we we talked about it. I knew he was going to do the film very early on, even when it was just at script phase. And he actually started uh, writing that suite. He calls them suites of, of, of types of score way before I even shot the movie, just off of what he sensed from the script. But one of the things we had both been inspired um, by Petra Hayden, I don't know if you know, one of the Hayden triplets, Charlie Hayden's daughters, um, who ha has done whole albums where she recreates movie scores w using only women's, her voice as the instrumentation. And also uh, this weird, very cool band called Room Full of Teeth um, with Caroline Shaw, who's, uh, who's now a Pulitzer Prize composer, I think she's a brilliant uh, classical composer. And then um, my wife, Susanna Hoffs, is uh, from the Bangles and she and Petra are really close and used to perform all the time. So Teddy took Petra and Sue and recorded their voices doing all this, ha, 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 and the, ah, 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 and then the, the stuff from the beginning. And he just put them on keys and played their voices like instruments. Oh, wow. You know, so it was a kind of interesting thing of roboticizing women, as mm. in, you know, like, um, you exp exploiting is the wrong word, but, you know, I like turn mechanizing the voices yeah. to make them haunting but yet have their personal flavor of the just the texture and and then Caroline came in and um did redid some of that but then did that whole thing at the very that end suite at when that sort of tribal thing over Beautiful, the credits yeah. at the end and then the 
uh, the amazing Regina Spector uh, watched the movie with me and uh, was just totally broke down and uh, wrote that original song that plays oh, over wow. the um, the One Little Soldier song. So it was always meant to be uh, women's voices, and because it's a story about women speaking up and voices, you know, adding their voices to the conversation, and that could have been very conceptual and sort of too heavy-handed and too. But Teddy is a master, and he he's the one who figured out how to make it kind of haunting, almost Philip Glass haunting, you know, uh, in that section, and it became. You know, that teaser trailer, I, I just had no... I When we shot the scene, I said, this could be a teaser just by itself. There's no dialogue, you know, but I was kidding, kind of. And then the studio actually did it, and I was... Um, that became... That was a really powerful um, introduction to our film. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, got lucky with that. No, and it, pa- it paved the way, I think, for what the tone of the film is. It's really, really cool. Um, Any do we have time for questions? Yeah, I'm cool. Everyone's really you. excited to ask a question, yeah. but I want to make sure we do. We do? Excellent. Sir with the hat. So um, they haven't. They, they, the I question think... is, have Gretchen and Megan seen the film? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I think Megan has seen it, but she hasn't commented on it. And I don't know if, I don't think Gretchen has. She still has her NDA. It's one of the interesting things about our, the timing of this movie. Um, the whole subject of NDAs has become such a thing. And Gretchen, since she, t- you know, did this incredible thing by, suing him and I was quick to remind people a year before the Harvey news broke when women weren't there were certainly the me too movement existed but there wasn't a wave of women speaking up for each other and supporting each other Gretchen you know sues him and takes this on and uh then after she you know after she gets the settlement and we didn't know that when we decided to end the film with her the lawyers saying to her Okay, you got the apology, which is amazing. No one ever apologizes. You got the settlement, but you're going to have to stay quiet. You're going to be muzzled. And she says, maybe. That was that was a late development in our process, but it wasn't related to the fact that we knew. we. This is about three months ago we came up with that ending. It didn't used to end that way. But now, because of Ronan's book and the Megan Tuhi, um, uh, Jody Cantor book, and you know, came up on Rachel Maddow, that NBC was going to have to give up, let women out of their NDAs. Now Gretchen, who's been lobbying Congress to, to stop forced NDAs, stop forced arbitration for years, is now the person asking Fox to let her out of her NDA. So I'm hoping she gets let out of her NDA, sees the film, and then t- <laughs> talks with us about Because that's that would be amazing, you know, to now get to... We never got to talk to her. She couldn't tell us anything about what she went through. It's one of the reasons that originally she, her story was a little less fleshed out. We slowly figured out more and more, and I shot a couple more scenes later. But, um, yeah, I'm really, obviously, we're really curious to hear what they... W- Megan had told her story in a book. She wrote a book uh, uh, that came out the fall after this all happened. And so we had a lot of detail to her story, but we didn't have any access to, to Gretchen's. Yes, ma'am. No. Oh, yes. Did the question is, <laughs> this is my Leslie favorite part of the Q&I, Q&I, guys. This is my favorite part. I get to act. The question is, um, did Charlize commission the script and or and or how did it how did yeah. the script come about? To um, you? Charles Randolph and um, Charles Randolph. I don't know exactly when he exactly started to do, but very soon after Char- uh, Roger was fired, went to Annapurna with Margaret Riley, his producer manager, and set it up as a pitch. Annapurna commissioned it and bought it and he actually had a bunch of buyers competing for it and Aperna got it 
He worked on it for about a year and some months, gave it to Charlize in the fall of 2017, late, late fall. And then she gave it to me. She was on the fence about it for a long time. And she gave it to me in February 2018. So we've been working on it. I've been working intensively on it for almost, you know, almost two years, but not quite. And um, they've been working on it for about three years. Um, so that's, yeah. And as I said, I did, I, Charlize just wanted some notes. And she said, uh, those are pretty good notes. Will you direct this? <laughs> and I said, are you sure? You One question was, are you sure you shouldn't get a woman to do it? Because obviously we're going to be behind the whole way trying to figure out as men what women went through. Um, but I committed right away, partly because I was collaborating with her to just not, you know, just it's going to be collaborative. We're going to all make it together. We're going to have to, you know, hopefully men, I do think men need to talk to men about this stuff and I can try to be some sort of a, uh, an interpreter, but not without women telling me what this was like, you know? Yeah, but it's a huge thing for uh, a male director like yourself who has such a huge body of work and is so respected to use where you are in your career to tell this story, to choose oh, to tell this story. You know what I mean? Like that's, I, I think that's really commendable and really important. And you're right, men do, men do also need to talk about it with each other because they shouldn't feel like they are separate from that conversation. Like, oh, you know, I mean, listen, I welcome hiring more female filmmakers. Yay, give me a job. But I, I, I also think part of, part of the healing process is, is, um, is, is that. So that's my own personal take. Um, sir, glasses. Do you have glasses? Yeah, you do. Hi. So the very long-winded but excellent question is, I'm going to give you the Fox News version of this question, which was, um, how, how was it kind of coming, uh, as someone that's taken a look at very complicated, bad characters, what was it like coming at um, these people who are real people who work for Fox News, who are ruining the country, and humanize them and make them, you know, valid characters in your story? Well, you know, I don't start by looking at them as bad people. Maybe, again, because of my own upbringing, I look at them as people who I don't agree with in so many ways, but I need to understand myself. It's a, I have a, I need, it's almost a coping strategy. Why would you think this? You know, why would you, how did you think Sarah Palin would be a good idea to be vice president of the United States? Someone thought that, and they weren't insane, and it actually turned, for them for a while, it turned out to be a good strategy. And, you know, I related with her just to jump back a couple of films because I was like, I'm throwing myself into things where I'm way in over my head all the time. Why, you know, why, uh, why can't I, I should look at myself. Why did I feel entitled to direct a movie about, you know, women's, you know, like I'm doing this, it's, it's something I do where, and, it, and I, so I, I felt, I just, I don't know, I felt for her that moment in when she's prepping the debate, she has no idea what she's doing. She's supposed to go up against Joe Biden at the time was one of the great, you know, debaters and senators, and she's supposed to deliver the knockout punch. You would have to knock down a bathroom door and find me naked on the floor, <laughs> curled up, saying, I, no, I'm not going out there. Like, I've, I related with that. And I, listen, I, do, I, I talked to many people on the left and right, but it's, I knew a lot more on the left, so I talked to them about Roger Ailes, who loved Roger Ailes, like thought, saw him as a mentor, a surprisingly generous person, incredibly witty person, um, you know, but I also saw 
see his point of view as being very paranoid, very, reminds me a lot of people in my family, very paranoid, very uh, sure that the essence of America is, un, you know, precious bodily fluids are being, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 being sapped out of us by the left, you know, That's by a, the... That's a Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange love, love reference, reference for all you nerds um, out there. And, uh, you know, that, I, I don't agree with it at all, and, and it is... It is really toxic. And sometimes it's to me, it's it's a kind of worldview that just divides us and pits us against each other. But I think trying to understand it and portray it authentically, and in this case, again, the the these women uh, were were not necessarily. If you were going to say, I'm going to do a Me Too movie, or I'm going to do a movie about these, would not necessarily be the first women you would think of to to be the examples of taking on a powerful man and actually bringing him down. But they did this, and they did it a year before, and that's what made it interesting. They were in complicated predicaments they had, you know, but they're, they're women who are like a lot of women in, in all sorts of political situations. So I, I didn't really, I have to go into it just like I asked the actors to go into it without judgment, but with an intense desire to understand, and then an equally intense desire to ask the audience to empathize and get over that prejudice. Because I think whatever, I don't know if you enjoyed the film or not, but if you did, it might be surprising to you that you enjoyed it based on the setting. And that's, that's a something, you know, that's I got you over something that you, some kind of prejudice or predisposition or whatever. And that's more interesting to me than coming at you about something you already agree with and, and know you're going to like and know you're going to, that seems more, to me, that's uh, more of a challenge. So. So you've, thank you for <laughs> thank you for encouraging me to keep doing that. Um, I believe we have to wrap up. Is that correct? Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't cover, Jay, that we should mention? No, no. The release thank you date, for the any of those things? Questions. Oh, we're okay. coming out. Uh, we're coming out here on uh, one, one more. For, uh, yeah, we should let some women ask questions. Yeah. Uh, good question. Oh, the, yeah. Question was: is, Did the Murdochs push back? Uh, no, um, but I don't know if they know what's happening yet. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm waiting for that uh, onslaught, you know, I'm waiting, I, and I'm also uh, becoming a little more paranoid myself, wondering what, uh, who's hacking into my internet accounts, you know, what, so I don't, I don't, you probably should, yeah. we don't know, um, you know, I think, I think, I think they're pro probably, you know, they authorized, uh, they, they okayed uh, Megan Kelly's book, which told this story to some extent. They, uh, as a corporate policy, um, at that time, realized they probably had to do this, but they allowed that uh, outside investigation to occur, you know, uh, at Fox, unlike NBC, as for example, recently. And they sort of knew they had to because they were under so much pressure and there were so many women coming forward. By the time they, they the Paul Weiss investigation, the firm Paul Weiss completed, I think a couple dozen women had come forward with very detailed charges. So I think they have actually tried to make a strong effort in this department at least, to make it safer for women to work at Fox. Uh, and I mean, so we, I think they might, whether it's true or not, and I don't know if anybody could, you know, testify about that right now, but um, it, it is in their PR for, the, for their publicity advantage to let us go. So I'm, we're kind of, I mean, I shouldn't, we, we, I wish they would be more contrary. I wish they would come at us, <laughs> you know, so, because that might, give us a little more, uh, I remember when, when Trump threatened to sue Michael Wolff, what's that? Yeah, <laughs> I'll drink the coffee, got good, that's a very good callback. Um, 
That's well, it. That's all we got. Thank Sorry. you, guys. So thank you so much for the answers. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tell your friends about it. <laughs> yeah. Tweets. Are they allowed to tweet? Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors James Mangold and Cassie Lemons. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 